right. How are we doing, Red Rocks Church? Yeah? All right. You feeling church? Are you feeling church today? I hope so. I hope you came for church. I came for church. I'm revved up on some caffeine right now, so... Let's do this. Um, Hey, let's welcome all of our campuses. We have so many campuses throughout the city. We've got an online campus. Our campus is at God Behind Bars. We welcome you guys, and we love you. And we're so glad that you're with us today. Thank you for joining us, taking time out of your busy schedules um, to just engage with the Lord. So... Uh, We are in a series called Birthright. First of all, my name is Jesse. I have the privilege of working at Red Rocks Church with our young adults. I just got back from maternity, um, and I quote Shakira when uh, she says, motherhood has made me sharper. And so I hope that what we bring today is going to be healthy for our church. It's going to move our church forward. It's going to grow us as individual believers. I'm believing that it's going to grow us as individual believers today at all of our campuses, that we are just going to put a stake in the ground and move forward forward spiritually um, as a body. And so we're in a series called Birthright. It's been an incredible series that came out of Chad's heart. And for those of you who know Chad, you know him on stage and uh, you may know him off off stage as well. But um, he's just been a mentor to me throughout my life and throughout my ministry life. And I'm just so grateful to him. And I know we already clapped, but can you just love on your pastor one time um, and just thank Chad for his heart? And Rachel, I love you. She's incredible. His wife is um, just as giving and gracious and funny. And so uh, just so grateful to be here with you guys. But this series called Birthright is so important for us. And um, I love uh, that we are in, you know, the season of Olympics. And I love America. I unabashedly love America. And you can call me, you know, whatever you want, overly patriotic. I might be, but I love America. Um, I love everything about America. I love the reality that we, uh, you know, we have freedoms here, that you can speak your mind, that you can write whatever you want to, you can, um, you can, you can worship in public the way that you want to and without fear of persecution, you can burn a, you, you know, a flag of the United States of America in the United States of America and be protected by the United States of America. I love America. I love the fact that, um, You know, I love our quirks, like I love reality TV, and um, that we love reality TV as Americans. I don't think other countries are as into it as we are. And um, we love Apple products, right? Um, (laughs) That guy loves it. and, and, and there's just this buzz in America. People are starting businesses and they're commuting and there's just this healthy, lively buzz in America. You know, people are going places and looking for Pokemon and just busy. <laughs> you know, they're just busy with life. And, um, but I do, I love it. And my favorite part about America is that if you are born here, if you were born here or you became a naturalized citizen here, there are some rights that are given to you. You didn't earn them. You did nothing to achieve them. You did nothing to uh, uh, make them your inheritance. They just are yours. And our founding fathers, when they wrote the Declaration of Independence, they, say, they said something like this at the beginning. They said, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creators certain unalienable rights, meaning there are some things that are given to you that are inheritances that no one can touch and, and then they say a couple of these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So there is nothing that you did to receive these rights. They're just yours for being an American. And they're protected by America. 
And in the same way, in Ephesians 1, Jesus writes, well, through the Apostle Paul, writes some rights that we have as Christians. They are unalienable. They are due to you simply because you were born again in Jesus. Simply because at one point you raised your hand, you received Christ, and you said, I want him as my Lord and Savior and as my life. And at that moment, there were some rights that were given to you. And it says this in Ephesians. Ephesians 1, 3 through 4. Praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Now, in week one, we talked about our first birthright, right? Chad talked about the fact that we are saints, right? Like that we are no longer sinners, but that our identity and our birthright, the inheritance that you have been given is that you are now a saint, right? And so um, I would be, I went to a little Christian college and I remember I had a friend and I'd always ask him, you know, hey, how you doing? And he'd be like, oh, Jess, I'm doing great. Just a sinner saved by grace. And, you know, and which is the way you talk. If you haven't been around Christian circles very long, you'll like run into these people. And I always thought like, oh, he's so humble and he's so, but theologically the dude was wrong. Okay. Because, because he's no longer a sinner. He is now first and foremost a saint. And if you miss Chad's message, go back, listen to it, like just take in that information because it's so important. The second week, Chad talked about the fact that we are chosen, that Jesus decided and that God the Father decided, the Trinity decided at the beginning of time before they even made you, before they even made me, that we were going to have some issues, we were going to have some problems, we were going to fall away, and he chose us anyway and knew that he would have to redeem us. In fact, God said, you are as worth it to me as my son. I choose you. I choose you. And if you missed that week, please go back, listen to it. And tonight what we're going to talk about is the fact that God, according to Ephesians 1, 3 through 4, that God has made us holy and blameless in his sight. So there's this word holy. Everybody said holy. Nice. Um, This word holy originates in the Old Testament, um, particularly in the book of Isaiah, but in other parts too, okay? And um, it talks about um, the holiness of God and then also through the Torah, the holiness of God's people, okay? And so um, it's defined two ways in the Old Testament, to be separate or to be other, okay? So when in Isaiah, when the cherubim and seraphim are crying out and they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, what they are saying is, He is completely other. He is completely separate from us. He is so good and other and great. He's something completely different. And then also uh, to be morally pure. Okay, this is, these are the two ways that holiness is used in the Old Testament. And then uh, we get to this word called blameless, which we find in the book of Leviticus. Okay, everybody say blameless. Nice. Okay. So blameless is uh, this word to be without blemish or to be without defect. Uh, uh, that's one of the, the ways that it's used in Leviticus. It's also used in the Psalms to refer to someone who can't be accused of wrongdoing before the Lord. Okay. And at different points in time, David would say, make me like this, make me without blemish or make me blameless before the Lord where I can't be accused of wrongdoing. Okay. And in Leviticus, the way that it's used, 
was about sacrificial animals. So anytime they would go to a temple, they would have to bring some animals, which is just super intense. We won't get into it. But um, so they would say, God would say to his people, if you want a sacrifice that's worth my time, please bring me an animal, a goat, whatever, that doesn't have a, a clip in its ear, that doesn't have a spot on its coat, that doesn't limp, that isn't sick. I want something without defect. I want something without blemish. And I don't know about you, but when I hear these two words, I feel like a middle schooler who has blemishes. Like, I try real hard. For those of you who haven't been in middle school, right? Proactive is your king in middle school. Like, you try, you work really hard, but the reality is that you are with blemish. I mean, I broke Judean law 32 times before I even got to church today. Like, I got angry with my children. I probably got angry with other drivers. I defiled, you know, they say that your body is a temple. I defiled my body with, like, crappy food, and uh, I watched The Bachelorette. And so, you know, and so my eyes, forgive me, Lord, are defiled. And so, I, you know, I ate bacon, and I liked it. <laughs> No, no. For any of you Messianic Jews in here, I am sorry, you know. Um, but here's the deal. Here's the deal. I don't know the way that you feel, but when I think about me being holy and blameless, I know me. I know me. And I know that that's not a title that I would give to myself. And yet this is what God calls me. Without blemish is what he calls me. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. If that is true, church, if that is true for you today, the reality is, is that you literally need to be a completely different person for this to apply to you. You need to be a completely different person for this to apply to you, because the reality is, is that no one walked in today and can say with integrity, I am holy and blameless, and Lord, you can't accuse me in your sight of wrongdoing. And so today, what I want to talk about is the reality that the gospel is much better than we probably assumed before we walked in today, that the gospel is so much bigger than what we assumed before we walked in today. And so turn to your neighbor and say, you're looking a little different. There's something different about you. Go ahead and turn to him and say, now, now don't say it like, there's something different about you. Okay, don't say it like that. Say it like, there's something different about you. Say it like that. <laughs> nice. Wow. There's some slandering going on over here. Okay. Let's bow our heads. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to be here. God, we are here. And as a church, we unite in one prayer and say, God, we are here for you. We are here to move forward spiritually. We are here to take ground. We are here to, uh, to become more like the person that you say we are in Christ. God, I pray that today at all of our campuses, Lord, that you would be with us, God, that you would move, that your Holy Spirit would be welcome, that you would renew us, that we wouldn't just come to church and be tired, God, that we wouldn't just come to church and sit and receive, God, but that we would, in faith, which is the currency of heaven, we would take ground, God, as a church, as a church family, all the individuals here, Lord, we lean on you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And everybody says, amen.
All right. How many of you consider yourself to be a competitive person? Raise your hand. You enjoy a little bit of competition. You enjoy a little bit of friendly competition. It's okay. Raise your hand. All right. Um, How many of you enjoy unfriendly competition? Yeah. Yeah. No, I know you. You're like, if it takes my elbow, it takes my elbow. Like, I've seen you in the Red Rocks Church Leagues. I know. Um, Right? So, uh, And then there's the people who say, oh, you know, oh, I'm not very competitive, right? And to you, I say, I don't believe you, okay? Because every single human being that I have ever met has a little bit of performance. Every single person I have ever met is a performer of sorts, um, that they know how to bring the best of themselves to the table in some area of life, okay? And it might not be on the basketball field. It might not be on the soccer field. It might not be, you know... uh, in sports or whatever, and so you say, oh, I'm not very competitive. But here's the reality. You show up at the 4th of July party with your bunt cake, and you're like, what's up? <laughs> right? It's, and someone's like, can I, can I get the recipe for that? And you're like, oh, no. Because mine's the best. You know, like, or like, you know, you, you, it might not be, uh, you know, in different sporting events that you feel competitive, but you get talking with your friends and it's like, oh, you know, and they're like, oh, Greg is reading words and he's, he's been reading, you know, different uh, books and we're so proud of uh, the different, you know, board books he's reading and you're like, oh, well, Delaney's reading chapter books. <laughs> it's probably not our parenting, but it might be, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Yes. Let's keep going. It might not be it might not be that you feel competitive, you know, and you and you want to get in physically with people in a boxing ring, but here's the reality, when those sales numbers go up every month, like you sit in your cubicle and you're like playing cool, right? But inside you're like You know, and you and then you lead your meek life beyond that. But the reality is is that every single person, I don't care who you are, you're a performer. And this is how I was born. I mean, I believe that since I was a kid, I loved performing. And I I loved performing actually on stage. And so I I liked playing sports and stuff like that. But as a kid, I loved acting. And so I would get on a stage and I would just, you know, I would ham it up. And I I loved being in front of people, I know. You're like, really? Um... (laughs) And so my mom put me in classes, and I did um, skits, and I would do auditions and stuff like that. And um, all growing up, that's what I did. I get into college, and I go to a, you know, like I said, a Christian university, and um, they're doing a fall play my freshman year. And I think to myself, oh, my goodness, I'm going to audition. And I look at it, and they are doing a modern-day rendition of Job, right? Because, because you can't do guys and dolls, I guess, at a Christian university. So it's like, so it's like we're going to do this looks really exciting. And so... Uh, modern day rendition of Job. Everyone's going to come. And, <laughs> um, and so I go to audition and I get in front of, you know, the people. And I, I notice that probably the biggest role for a female is Job's wife. And so I read for Job's wife. I bring everything that I have. You know, if you know the story of Job, I like smeared my face with like mud and like wore like tattered clothing, you know, for when everything went AWOL. And so and I get in there, and I, and I do my best. I read, and I bring everything I have to the table. And I leave, and I feel like, bam, like nailed it, right? 
And I go back to my dorm, and that following Monday, they post on the theater door, they post the roles that everyone got. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my goodness, just, you know, wife of Job, Jesse Hills, that's what I'm looking for. And I get up there, and I notice that next to my name, that's not the role, or next to uh, that role, my name isn't there. And I keep going thinking, well, like, maybe I got, you know, um, the friend of Job, or maybe I got you, like, something. I don't know. And I keep going down, and I don't find my name. And finally, I get to the very bottom. My name was Jesse Hills before I got married. And it says, Jesse Hills, prostitute. (laughs) I had two lines. I had two lines. It says, oh, no, that's terrible. Those were my two lines. And, and, and. I seriously was like, this is a joke, but have you, I, I worked so hard. I mean, I, I, my monologue was on point and like my, I came with everything that I had. I bought, you know, like clothes and like cut them up just so I, I looked the part. Like, have you ever brought your best performance to the table? And it is not enough. Have you ever brought the best that you have? And it doesn't measure up. Because according to scripture, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, he's outlining for everybody what he considers a good performance, what he considers holy, what he considers you hitting tens in the kingdom of heaven. And he says this, be perfect, therefore, as my heavenly father is perfect. Be perfect, therefore. As my heavenly father is perfect. And I picture everybody kind of looking around, you know, and Jesus gets done and he's like, okay, there it is, you know. And the disciples are like, oh, you're not messing with us. You want us to be like God. For every single person in here, for every single Christian in here, You can come and you can bring the very best performance that you have to Jesus. You can come to God today and you can lay it all out and it won't be enough. Have you ever had a moment where you brought your best to the table and it didn't measure up? See, every single person in here is with defect, is with flaw, is with blemish. And Jesus said, I came that you might be holy and blameless. And so how does this happen? We meet a woman in Mark 5 who's much like you, much like me. And she is with blemish. She is with issues. She has some problems, okay? And she is going to bring the best that she has. And it's not going to be enough. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Mark 5. And we'll hang out there the rest of the day here. It says this, Mark 5, verse 24, a large crowd followed and pressed in around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors, and she had spent all that she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in a crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. So we meet a woman who's been subject to bleeding for 12 years, okay, which we think, oh, well, that just makes it, you know, kind of a physical issue, and that's sad. But here's the reality, is that for her, what it meant was that by Jewish law, she was a lawbreaker, 
According to Jewish law, she was unclean, okay? And this wasn't um, the uh, feminine type of issue for her that was normal. In fact, scholars think that she probably had some internal hemorrhage of some kind or a tumor. But for her, she was classified the way the Bible would classify a woman at a given point in time as unclean. And she was like this every day of her life for 12 years. Because of this, she couldn't be around people. She couldn't live, live a normal life. She was removed. She was flawed. She was blemished. And the Bible makes it clear that this woman did everything she possibly could to make it so that this wasn't so. The Bible says that she spent everything that she had. And so I was reading this, and I assume that this woman has some money. Right? I assume that this woman comes from a little bit of affluence, or maybe she knows how to make money. She can sell something. She can sell some garments. She can create something. Um, she, in other words, she has some performance in her. She has some ability in her to bring to the table. And she's going to do the best that she can in order to fix her ordeal, in order to fix her issue, in order to fix her problem. And the Bible says she spent everything she had, every penny, and yet she didn't get better. She only grew worse. See, she's a performer like you and me. Some of you fathers in here, you're like, if I could only get my temper under control, I just need to lock it down so that I can be a better dad. And we're trying. Some of us in here, it's a substance, right? And you've been clean for maybe a month or maybe a, a year, but you fall quickly and easily back into old habits and old patterns. Maybe for you, it's your thought life. And you're thinking, my goodness, I need to get my thought life under control. Like it keeps moving to this place of depression and anxiety and worry and frustration. And I don't know why. And I'm trying so hard and it's just not working. Or maybe for you, it's some type of sin that you deal with over and over and over again. And you kind of pony up and you try to get at it again. Maybe for you, it's that you want a marriage someday. You want to find a spouse and have this holy, um, you know, sacred union with someone else. But you're so lonely. And so instead of waiting for that and instead of doing that, you spend your weekends finding different partners and different scenarios that make you fill that void of loneliness. See, every single person in here, we feign at holiness. We pretend, we play at holiness. But at the end of the day, we are just like this woman. We spend everything we have, and we are still with blemish. And so I think that there is a, a lot that we can glean from her, from her story. It goes on, and it keeps reading, and it says, When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, If I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. So she comes up behind him in her desperation. This is like a last chance stitch effort kind of a thing. She touches him because she's heard some things. Maybe she'll get healed. She's not sure, right? She comes out of shame because she comes up behind him. It says, at once Jesus realized the power had gone out of him. He was like, oh, something left. You know, like, he knows. He turned around in the crowd and he says, who touched my clothes? You can see the people crowding around you. 
these are the disciples talking. They're like, Jesus, there are tons of people. They are squishing you. Like, it's like Woodstock. Everyone's touching you. Like, you can't say who touched me because there's no way of knowing. Everyone is. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Someone touched me intentionally. Someone touched me with faith. Someone touched me with desperation. And he looks throughout the crowd, and he keeps looking to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, and told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. There are some things that Jesus wants us to glean from the scripture. He wants scripture to reinvent us today. And there are some things that he wants us to understand about this story. And the first thing is this, is that Jesus came for the people with blemishes. Jesus came for the people with blemishes, which might not seem mind-boggling to you, but I, will, uh, I would like to present the idea that most Christians don't understand that and most Christians don't live like that. Because here's the reality. For this woman, she came to Jesus, and when she did, she'd been unclean for 12 years. According to Leviticus 15, 19 through 30, there were very specific rules about women with bleeding issues. And basically, if you sat on something, it was unclean. If you touched something, it was unclean. And so for this girl, there was no sweet 16 birthday parties because she couldn't be around anyone. For this girl... There was, there was no marriage. There was no uh, children because she couldn't touch anyone. And not only that, but back then in first century Judea, if you had a physical malady of some kind, it was assumed it was because you sinned. And so not only did she have this outward and physical suffering, she also had internal shame. And sin says you did something wrong, but shame says you are wrong. This was how she lived for 12 years. She has issues, church. And in order to get clean, what needed to happen according to the Levitican law is she had to wait 24 hours until the bleeding stopped. So first of all, she had to get the bleeding under control. That's why she went to many, many doctors. But then after that, she had to wait 24 hours before she could even be with anyone else and then, um, you know, be around anyone else. Otherwise she would, you know, disparage them as well. And, and then she had to take two doves to the temple and sacrifice them unto the Lord. And then she could go and live her life. And we in 2016 say, well, oh my goodness, how archaic. My goodness, I mean, we don't live this way. How judgmental. But the reality is, is that in 2016, this is how we view issues in our own life and in other people's lives. I mean, think about you before you came into church today. You probably dressed a little bit nicer than you normally do. You probably, like, wiped your kids' faces, like, no food, right? Like, you probably made a mental note, don't say four-letter words in the lobby. You're going to talk to people. (laughs) See, we think that church is for church people. We think that church is for cleaned up people. And we literally think as a body, most of the time we believe and we buy into the lie that Jesus came for people who got themselves clean, who made their sacrifices and then presented themselves. And yet we witness this woman coming to Jesus in the middle of her blemish and in the middle of her defect. I would like 
for us once again to receive the truth that Jesus came for people with issues. He came for people with problems. In Mark 5, he turns around and he starts looking for the woman. And we think, you know, he's going to be frustrated with her. Or at least this is what she thinks. She thinks he's going to be upset with me because I touched him. He, he's going to be upset with me because I'm unclean and I'm, I'm just trying to get a miracle done here. Right? Like, because we really do think as a church and as a church body, most of us in the room, if we were to be honest in the depths of our souls, we really do think that if we're honest with God and we come to him with really who we are, with what we've done, with what we've experienced, with the things that we have to bring to the table that he will be frustrated with us, that he will be disappointed in us, that he will be um, malignant and, and, and angry towards us. We, we do think this. And so the moment Jesus starts looking for her, she hides because she's like, oh my goodness, have you hid from Jesus because you're pretty sure how you think he's going to receive you. And he keeps looking for her, he keeps looking for her, Finally, she comes forward, and she tells him everything that she's done. He intentionally turns towards her because he wants her to know in this moment, I'm not just healing you. I'm receiving you. I'm not just healing the things that you've done. I'm receiving who you are. I'm accepting you. I'm taking you in. I'm turning towards you. I'm not just going to deal with your sin. I'm turning towards you. See, we... we, we forget that Jesus spent most of his time with people with issues. That Jesus, he took a ferry ride across the ocean, across the sea, just to be with a dude who was demon-possessed and chained and left to die. That he did it just for that guy. There was no reason for Jesus to go there except for to be with a man with issues. That he meets a woman at the well who, for the majority of her life, has lived a very sexual and crazy past. That he meets a woman who is thrown in front of a bunch of Pharisees who has been caught in the act of adultery. That he eats dinner with sinners. That he eats dinner with tax collectors. That he randomly meets a bunch of leopards and heals them. Jesus loves being with people who are, who are blemished. And at one point, the Pharisees, they look at him and he's eating with tax collectors and sinners and they're like, what is this dude's issue? He is not doing church right. You are not doing it the way that we normally do it, Jesus. We, this is not the way, I mean, normally people get clean on the outside and then they come in and then it's cool, but not the, this is not how we do it. You're doing it backwards. And Jesus literally looks at them and he says, looks, it is not the righteous I came for, but the unrighteous. And here's the deal. He's kind of looking at the Pharisees like, and nobody's righteous, just so you know. It's not the healthy who need healing. It's the sick from a doctor. And I got to wonder that there's a whole bunch of us in here that need to hear the fact and the reality and the truth that he came for people with issues. Jesus came to call people who had spent everything that they had, and it wasn't enough. How beautiful is that? How good is our God? The second thing I think we can glean from this woman and from her interaction with Jesus is that he is good with the trade. 
He's good with the trade. It says this, when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him and she touched him because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. Okay, there is an exchange happening here. There's an exchange happening. Um, This woman, we know we've already talked about her. She is, according to Jewish law, unclean. Jesus is a rabbi. And he is wearing uh, some type of outer garment. And most rabbis uh, in first century Judea would have these tassels or these fringes at the end of their coats. And it was called the tzitzit. And it was the most holy. It was the most sacred. It was the most personal part of their cloak. If you were not his wife, if you were not his child, to touch this part of his cloak would be horrifying to any rabbi. And this woman reaches out and touches his cloak And in this moment, what's happening is literally she is becoming unclean in the same moment that she's touching him and giving him all of her uncleanliness. There is an exchange that's happening here, and Jesus is good with the trade. This is what we call in theological circles imputed righteousness. For any of you who are from Denver Sem, you're like, oh, finally, she's talking my language. Um, It means that he's righteous. And that he gives it, he gives it to you. And in return, he receives the uncleanliness of you. Have you ever played the blame game? Uh, Spouses in here? No? Okay, I'll go first. Um, (laughs) uh, You load the dishwasher, here's an example. You load the dishwasher and it's like leaking for some reason. And one of you is like, I mean, did you, did you... Did you start this? Did you see that this is happening? And the other one's like, well, you're the only, you're, you always put the forks in wrong. You know, you put them fork up. It's supposed to be forked down. And then it's like, well, no, you're the one that always puts soap in and you put too much soap in and you don't put the little thing that's supposed to clean the cups really good, you know, and then the blame game, right? For John and I, it normally has to do, I swear with weddings. Let me explain. We try to get to a wedding on time and we both want to look nice. And normally what happens is we both take an extra long time to get ready. We both have lots of issues in that way. And then we're always late. Like, literally, we've walked into weddings like, oh, it's the vows. <laughs> mm, you know, <laughs> like, and I just hope the bride doesn't see me. Um, so we'll be driving to a wedding, and we're in a fight. And it's like, well, you're the one that took, like, nine hours to do your hair. And this could be either one of us saying this to the other one. <laughs> And I'm like, well, you're the one that has 9,000 pairs of shoes, and you wanted me to look at every single pair of shoes. And he's like, well, you're, you got us lost. And I'm like, you shouldn't trust me, like, ever, with, with directions, ever. I told you I wanted to do Siri, you know? And we'll go back and forth like this. We'll go, you know, will you, will you, will you? Blame, 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 blame. And then at some point, one of us will look at the other one, and we'll be like, oh, yeah? Well, you married me. What we're saying is like, you're the idiot that married this. And so this is actually your fault, (laughs) you know? And so, and it normally, and then we laugh, you know, it ends the the debate and we're both losers, right? And so, (laughs) but the blame game, we play this and we play it in life. We don't just play it in our marriages, you know, it's like, oh, well, did you get that report in time? And, you know, did you get the report in on time? Oh no, it was late, but it was because Jerry got me the numbers late. 
We do it with our children. We do it with our friends. And it's literally like we don't want to be guilty. It's so uncomfortable to be guilty. And so we shift the blame. We don't want to be unclean. We don't want to be with defect. We'll make it somebody else's problem. Because to be with defect means somewhere deep in the recesses of our being, we think we can't be loved. So we got to shift it. And Jesus in this moment is literally saying, it's okay. I'll take the blame. I'll take the blame. And in this moment, child, you will walk away blameless. There will be no blame for you. Not blame on you, blame off of you. Not shame on you, shame off of you. He is good with the trade. And the reason that we know he is good with the trade is because he looks for her. He doesn't just want to heal her. He wants to see her. Understand this today. He doesn't just want to fix your issue. He wants to embrace you. He doesn't just want to heal some type of sin in your life or make it so that you have a productive life or make it so that you have a blessed life. He wants to embrace you. And so he's looking for this woman. He's trying to see her eye to eye. And she finally comes forward and she kneels down. And in bravery, she admits her flaw. Now listen in church here's our problem is that sometimes we want holiness and we want him to fix us but we're not willing to face the facts we're not willing to tell God what we really did we're not willing to say I have blemishes she comes to him and she says Jesus I've tried everything I've spent everything that I have I've given my best and I've heard about you and I thought that maybe if I touched you You'd heal me. And we know in this moment that Jesus is good with the trade. You want to know how I know that? Because his very first words to her are this. Daughter. Daughter. You just touched me. You made me unclean. And I'm good with it. Not blame on you. Blame off of you, daughter. Not shame on you, shame off of you, daughter. Which leads me to my last point, and it's this. He literally calls her something that doesn't deal with her sin, that doesn't deal with her issue. He calls her something that deals with her identity, that deals with who she is in the depth of her being. And he calls her by a new name. Which leads me to the last point that we can learn from the woman. And it's this. You are not who you were, church. You are not who you were. When we encounter the woman in Mark 5.34, she is a completely different person from the woman that we initially meet in Mark 5.25. She's completely different. Not only is she healed, but you have to think. I mean, isn't it interesting that it says she was freed from her suffering? Not, oh, and then it stopped, and then she was good. Like, she was healed. She was freed, 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 freed from her suffering. 
And I think we come to Jesus and initially what drives us to church and what drives us to Christ and what drives us to God is we do want his blessing. We want him to fix what's going on in our life. We want him to fix what is corrupt and what's, what's happened in our life. Or maybe we want him to progress us forward or we want him to um, help us with this anxiety. And we ask for so little. We really do because we ask him to deal with our issue. We say, Jesus, help me with this anger problem. Jesus, help me with this substance. Jesus, help me, um, you know, help me with my thought life to get it under control. Help me with purity, God, help me. And he looks at us and he says, okay, I'd actually like to do a whole lot more than that. See, Jesus in this moment, please church understand this. He didn't just come to deal with her issues, to deal with her sin. He came to overcome her humanity. And to make it new. And I don't know about you. But when I came to Jesus, I didn't just need someone to deal with my sins. I was fractured. I was a good kid. But something was wrong on the inside. And I knew it. (laughs) Maybe nobody else did because I was a good performer. But I knew And when I came to him, I came to him not because of the promise that he would heal my issue. I came to him with the promise that he would make me something new. (laughs) Today what he wants to do, what he wants to tell you is he didn't come just for your sins. He came for your very self. This woman, her life, what's happened to her, the Bible, what it describes in Leviticus, really the life she's living, she's as good as dead. I mean, she has no life, really. She has no friends. She has no community. The suffering is deep. She's as good as dead. And in Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8, Paul is trying to outline for us what it means for Jesus to not just deal with what we do, but to deal with who we are. And in the beginning, he starts it with the fact that you and I, when we come to the table, we are spiritually dead. The Bible says that you were dead in your transgressions, that you were unregenerative in your spirit, that there was nothing there. There was void. There was death there. The Bible also says in Romans that we were in bondage to decay, okay? You were as good as dead. This woman was as good as dead. And Paul's trying to build a case here. He's trying to help us understand what it was that Christ did for us. And I think uh, we sell him short. We sell him short because he's trying to paint a picture. And he says this. He says, you know, oh, in the, you know, the Roman cells and in the prisons, you remember what it's like? You know, there's, um, there's prisoners down below. And normally what would happen is there would be one prisoner here and there would be another prisoner right next to him. And they would be chained together. And because of the decrepit environment in which they would live, sometimes one of the prisoners would like die. And you would be chained to them because the guards didn't care for a day, for a week, for months maybe. And he gives this imagery of you being attached to a dead man, to a dead man. And at one point in Romans 7, he gets pumped up and he's like, look, church, look, 
when I said Galatians 2.20, when I said that it is no longer um, I that live, but Christ that lives within me because I am dead. It has to be him now. I meant it. And he's trying to build a case that we are dead in ourselves and that we are attached to a dead man. And then he says this, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things that I'm trying to do, I'm not good at. My performance isn't enough. I sell everything that I have and it won't measure up. And then he says, oh, wretched man that I am. Who can save me from this body of death? And then he says, but thanks be to God. Because what Jesus did when he died was he didn't just deal with your sins. When he died, it says that by his death, you are cleansed and you are, your sins are forgiven. But by his life, by his resurrection, you now live. Meaning this, by his death, he dealt with your sins. By his resurrection, he gives you literally his life. It is no longer you that lives. He means it. It is Christ that lives in you. He means it, church. And here's what Galatians says. It, is, it says, it is for freedom's sake that Christ set you free. He like, he broke the chain. The dead man's gone. The old man's dealt with. You are no longer that person. You are not who you were. You are not who you were. You are not who you were. But here's what a whole bunch of us do. It is for freedom's sake that Christ set you free. And then it says this, but do not find yourself again in the yoke of slavery. And here's what a bunch of us do. We say, well, this looks like me. And we carry around our old man and our dead man. And we pretend and we feign that that's who we are. And Jesus is looking at us and he's like, come on, church. I didn't die for your sins alone. I died to give you my Holy Spirit, that the very spirit that raised Christ from the dead now lives in you, that you are holy, that you are blameless, that you are seated at the right hand of God, that you are a saint, that you are holy and dearly loved, that you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. And you're like, well, Jess, like, how is that practical sanctification? You want to hear practical sanctification? It is reckoning every day as dead what is dead and reckoning as life what is alive in Christ. Every morning I wake up and I say, that is not who I am anymore. I am holy and dearly loved. I am seated at the right hand of God. And here, here's the deal. There is a person that you already are in Christ and you are just learning to live like that's true. That is your practical sanctification. Hebrews 10, 14 says, God has perfected forever that which he is making holy. And if everybody at all the campuses could stand, I just have two quick questions. Every eye closed. If you are in here and you've never even received him as your savior, let alone your life. So I'm talking about salvation right now. You never received Jesus. You didn't know he came for people with issues. You didn't know that he loves you. You didn't know that he accepts you. And you want that. You've been hearing me talk and you're like, oh my goodness. I want him the way he wants me. If you're in here tonight, will you just slip up your hand real brave like, just slip it up. I just want to see you. And I'm going to pray for you. Slip it up. Slip it up. Don't be afraid. He loves you. Thank you. I see you. Secondly, if you're in here and you're a Christian and you've lived a good amount of time knowing Jesus but not knowing him as life, not knowing that he has set you free from the body of death, that he didn't just come to deal with your sin but with who you are. And tonight you want to say, you know what, I'm done with my dead man. Would you slip up your hand? 
God, thank you for tonight. God, I pray that every single person in here, I thank you for those that received you as salvation. You say that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, we will be saved. And I thank you for people who have received you tonight and will party with you in heaven. And God, I thank you for every single person that is taking a faith step forward and saying, it's no longer me, but it's you, Jesus, that lives within me. We praise you that you love people with issues, that you came for us, that you died for us, and now we live in you. We worship you now. In Jesus' name, amen.